now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode two of The Drug Season, Just Science interviews Prete Menon, the Senior Associate Director at the Justice Programs Office, a center in the School of Public Affairs at American University. One of Ms. Menon's many roles include being the Principal Investigator and Project Director for the National Drug Court Resource Center, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Principal Investigator for the Juvenile Drug Treatment Court Training and Technical Assistance Initiative, funded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Drug courts are one of the many tools the Department of Justice is using to combat overcrowded prisons and dangerous drug addictions. Listen along to find out how these courts are improving the justice system and how American University is contributing in the fight against addiction. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to the Just Science Podcast, a podcast for forensic science professionals sponsored by the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence of the National Institute of Justice. I'm John Morgan. I'm with RTI's FTCOE, Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a season on drugs. We've been, today we're actually going to be looking at a different set of practitioners than the forensic science practitioner. We're going to be looking at some folks who I think are going to be much more important going forward as the nation deals with the opioids crisis. And that is, we're going to be looking at drug courts. Now, uh, this will be a great education for uh, many folks because of my past at NIJ. I'm familiar with the research that NIJ has done showing the impact, uh, very positive impact, that drug courts have had over the last uh, many years now. And today, I have the privilege of talking to Gritty Menon. Gritty is the Senior Associate Director at American University's Justice Programs Office and the project director for the National Drug Court Resource Center. And the NDCRC is an important resource across the drug court community, very similar in some respects to the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence for Forensic Science. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's just start with some definitional things, if we could. Tell us about what is a drug court and why did drug courts begin and what is their role within the criminal justice system in this case? A drug court is a judicially supervised court docket that provides a sentencing alternative to incarceration for people who are facing criminal drug charges who live with serious substance use and mental health disorders. And drug courts, they use a combination of judicial oversight and evidence-based treatments to help people change and improve lives. And as a type of problem-solving court, they take a public health approach to substance use and crime using a specialized model in which several components, such as You have the judiciary, the prosecution, defense bar, probation, law enforcement, mental health, social services, and treatment communities all work together to help addicted offenders into long-term recovery. And while uh, models vary, most include things like a random and regular drug test. They require frequent uh, appearances in court. And uh, there are rewards for progress for staying on track with treatment plans, as well as sanctions for failures to meet obligations. So when did they actually start? When did drug courts become a thing here in the United States? 
John, the first drug court started in 1989 in Miami-Dade County, Florida, as a response to the growing crack cocaine problem plaguing the city. In 89, back then, uh, local jurisdictions were consistently finding that punishment does not solve the problem of addiction because it needs to be treated and not ignored. And so the drug courts were founded in hopes of reducing recidivism and addressing addiction. And then by 1999, there were 492 drug courts that existed nationwide. That's just within 10 years. That's extraordinary. And of course, they've continued to grow to the present day. Is the drug court model consistent across the country? I assume that with that level of expansion, that there's been some variation with respect to approach. No, absolutely. So there are new generation of problem-solving courts. Let me just give you the latest data real quick. Latest data that we have is from 2015, and there were over 3,000 drug courts operating in all of the United States, all over, including D.C., Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, various tribal regions, and uh, Northern Marina Islands. And the new generation of problem-solving courts that I just mentioned, they also aim to focus on treatment and solve the underlying issues resulting in drug use. So there are courts like the Veterans Treatment Court, the DUI Court, Mental Health Court, and Tribal Healing to Wellness Court. And then in addition to that, uh, drug courts can also have focused audiences such as Adult Drug Court or Juvenile Drug Treatment Court and Family Drug Court. So in terms of how they actually operate on a day-to-day basis when, uh, you know, an offender comes before the court, does it feel like a traditional court setting? Is it more like an administrative court setting? Is it more of a, uh, we're going to sit down and discuss this? What does the setting actually look like? It's a little bit of a combination. So a drug court is assigned by a judge who sees an offender who um, they determine if provided treatment support, has the opportunity to become successful functioning citizen in society. And the two types that I'm going to talk about is a deferred prosecution and post-adjudication models. And in a deferred prosecution or a diversion setting, defendants are diverted into the drug court system prior to pleading to a charge. And then in a post-adjudication model, defendants, they have to plead guilty to their charges, but their sentences are deferred or suspended while they participate in the drug court program. Now, the successful completion of the post-adjudication model can result in waived sentences and sometimes an expungement of the offense. Either case, these programs seek to lead people into recovery and to break the cycle of recidivism. So are one of those models proven more effective than the other, or is it really differ from, from location to location with respect to how they are uh, implemented? So there has been research conducted on drug courts, and according to um, National Center for DWI Courts, drug courts are incredibly successful with reducing recidivism amongst offenders by solving the issue causing the criminal activity, which is the drug and alcohol addiction. Let's explore for a minute about the idea of just how effective are they? I mean, you mentioned recidivism and and its uh, connection to treatment. So let's explore just how effective are drug courts, uh, at least as far as we know. So some of the results from studies conducted by the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, they include statistics such as drug courts are six times more likely to keep offenders in treatment long enough to complete their treatment program and to stay on their path to sobriety. And then 75% of adult criminal drug court graduates, they surveyed at least two years after their graduation, were not rearrested. And then in reductions in crime, they last at least three years and can endure for over 14. The most rigorous and conservative scientific meta-analysis have all concluded that drug courts 
significantly reduce crime as much as 45% more than other sentencing options. Now, that's interesting. How much has it been pulled apart with respect to the elements of drug courts that are relevant? And I guess that's what I was trying to get at before, and that is, what do we know about what's most critical? Because treatment options, of course, are very limited. Is treatment really available universally in connection with drug courts? Treatment is, that is one of the main components of a drug court. The two main causes of success apart from treatment that we are finding, uh, one is family support during and after treatment. And two is education and employment opportunities. And honestly, I would also like to make a case for community support and supervision, both of which also ensure treatment success. Yeah, so it's interesting because the drug courts take a much more personalized model to a case of, of somebody who is a drug offender, which I think is probably something which might be more valuable in a lot of other cases as well. Are there similar models? You mentioned like the DWI court, which is kind of similar to the drug court. But are there models like in juvenile justice and that kind of thing that are comparable where people are, are trying similar kinds of approaches to deal with the issue of recidivism and trying to get somebody into a, a more legitimate path? Absolutely. So the juvenile drug treatment court, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, is what takes that approach for juveniles. In fact, in December 2016, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is part of the Department of Justice, released the juvenile drug treatment court guidelines for the local jurisdictions. And those guidelines are out there right now, and you can find them on the OGDDP website. But our office at American University is also tasked with providing training and technical assistance for those guidelines. So we have a team of experts that work at Justice Programs Office at AU. Initially, they conduct a self-assessment tool of the jurisdiction in assessing how they implement the guidelines and then provide training and technical assistance. Well, that's excellent. That actually raises the question that I'd like to get into for folks who aren't familiar. So how long has American University been involved with the uh, center from BJA, the National Drug Courts Resource Center? And let's talk about uh, the work that you're doing there as well. So what's, uh, how long have you all been doing that and what does that program entail? So we've been working with the National Drug Court Resource Center for the past two years. Again, uh, it's a project or a drug court initiative that's part of Bureau of Justice Assistance at U.S. Department of Justice. At the Resource Center, we provide information, research, and tools to drug court practitioners. And in addition to research, we offer a wide variety of resources, such as maps of drug and other treatment courts across the country. So you asked me about the different models or different types of drug courts. Those are all on the map. You can just scroll and find different um, types of drug courts online. And we also have other useful tools for practitioners that can help their participants receive treatment they need to get their lives back on track. The website is ndcrc.org. And we regularly communicate and reach out to the field through our monthly newsletter as well, which you can sign up for on our website. One of the things that really uh, excited us at the FTCOE is you have your own podcast, too, Anna Kuzman from the uh, National Drug Court Resource Center, NDCRC, actually has a podcast as well that you all do on in the drug court area. Is that right? Uh, yes. Our podcast is called On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. It is indeed hosted by Anna Kuzman, and it focuses on different aspects of treatment courts. We have the first three episodes that are on the website, and it highlighted the work being done in family treatment courts and why this model works. And you'll be interested in this. Our next three episodes will focus on the intersection between treatment courts and the opioid crisis. 
So I definitely encourage oh. everyone to subscribe and listen to the podcast. Oh, that's very exciting, and we're going to make sure that we promote that through the FTCOE so some of the folks who are interested in forensic science can learn about that. We just are completing a series on opioids, a webinar series on opioids, so that's very, very timely. And it's really kind of interesting because one of the things that I would expect is that the model is going to have to uh, recognize some of the new challenges with opioids, especially as, as some of these, not only the opioids, but the novel psychoactive substances uh, emerge sometimes every week uh, in, in, in some regards. And that's a, that's a unique challenge for the system as a whole, but for drug courts in particular, right? Absolutely, yes. What I can tell you about that is one of the goals that drug courts have for their participants is to min help them maintain sobriety. And part of that process is to ensure random drug testing. And because that's the staple of drug court programs, the time that it takes to confirm a positive drug test can alter how teens respond to their contingency management. So this is a key part of how drug courts work to alter behavior. And sometimes courts just don't have in-house labs to confirm these drug tests. And it can be timely and costly, as you can imagine, to, to these programs. So a forensic lab can develop cheaper and faster ways to confirm these drug tests. That could be beneficial for administering incentives and sanctions more swiftly. Are you seeing that there's an increased interest in the drug court model with the opioid epidemic? I mean, my theory is that the answer has to be yes, because the addiction problems with opioids can be quite severe. And so the need for more intensive and effective treatment is going to be much more important. Absolutely. So the most important thing that drug courts can do to help people with opioid use disorder is to ensure that their treatment providers are offering medicated-assisted treatment, such as methadone or naltrexone. So when what happens is other programs, they've also offered training on Narcan or naloxone, which reverses opioid overdose. So for example, if a drug court participant is with someone who's using or there's an overdose, they will be able to administer the, that drug and save a life. And then many drug courts offer education to their participants on Good Samaritan laws that may exist in their states. So we've seen some courts that provide education days for community um, in order to help community learn about these things as well. I do want to bring up one um, particular court that I'm thinking of that offers opioid crisis intervention, and it's in Buffalo. Uh, this court, um, it's based on a more traditional drug court model, but what they do is they defer in such that they ensure that the participants can enter treatment immediately after arraignment. This is to focus on helping the participant become sober and stable right away, and when that has been accomplished, they return to the regular drug court proceedings. Interesting. In, in other cases, it isn't always right away that they're able to find a slot in treatment, I assume. Correct. And of course, one of the hardest parts is after treatment is formally complete, I assume this is where uh, some of the nexus with family support and community support becomes much more important as well. And again, this is a major issue with respect to uh, the uh, opioids issue in particular, but I assume it's a broader, broader problem set as well. Are there resources that are emerging? Are the resources getting stronger or are there real gaps with respect to the resources that are available in that regard? I think it's both. There are definitely resources that are emerging, but there is a, such a great need out there that there's definitely room for more information to be filtered through the state and local jurisdictions. In what ways does the Resource Center help the individual drug courts 
with resources to help them be more effective in their job. Are there particular strategies that you all recommend, and how do you transfer that knowledge out into what is a pretty broad and diverse community as well? Absolutely. So what we house on our website are a host of operational documents, and also we have uh, webinars on there to provide information on how to implement different strategies in drug courts. In addition to that, we have a series of roles of webinar series. So for instance, a drug court or an emerging drug court can go to our website and learn about like role of a role of prosecution in drug courts or role of defense in drug courts and so forth. The next webinar that we are working on in-house is called Role of Law Enforcement in Drug Courts. So look out for that as well. Oh, that'll be very, very exciting. I think it's very interesting what you mentioned about the partnership with forensic laboratories, because one of the things I do know from broader criminal justice research is that there is a shorter time between the intervention and the offense. The quicker the intervention happens, the more effective the intervention is. So any delay that happens in the forensic laboratory is is actually making it harder for the drug court to operate. It'd be wonderful to be exploring some options, some some models, which the forensic laboratory is able to provide that kind of turnaround through the drug courts to make that more effective. I think you've definitely hit the nail on the head because we, that's one of the Things that we see, the delay from, you know, when someone is brought into the drug court and sent into treatment, but then also the second one being looking at, you know, the drug testing that gets done and then getting the results back and, again, figuring out if somebody has fallen off the treatment plan, how to get them back on. And so, yeah, if we had some way of getting those results quickly, we could definitely help the participants stay on track. Yeah, that's really uh, that would be really uh, fun. And I think there are an awful lot of folks in crime laboratories around the country who uh, listening to this would say, "Yeah, yeah, this is a way for us to to maybe make a make a uh, uh, do some high throughput work or something like that in our laboratory to give you those toxicology results back a little faster." It'd be a fun thing. Maybe we'll do. Maybe we'll follow up from the podcast and see if there's folks are willing to to uh, partner with our local drug courts in that regard. Yeah, and I encourage your listeners to go to our maps and see what drug courts are in their local jurisdiction, and they can call them up and see if there's a, you know, a way that they can help. So there's differences, obviously, among the different kinds of drugs and how an individual responds. There's also a lot of differences in terms of the diverse populations that uh, are involved as well. Are there ways that drug courts are able to work in diverse communities and and tailor some of the intervention options so that they'll be most effective? One of the things that we do use uh, in order to decrease any sort of biases when it comes to diversity is using validated risk instruments. So we have the screening and the assessment tools. And obviously, you know, we can't predict who will be the best candidate for drug court. And we like to think that we can trust our gut in selecting who would be most successful. But what we offer is, or what we recommend is, for drug courts to only use validated tools to determine a person's entry to drug court, as well as their treatment and case plans. And then the other way that I think that gets to the crux of the question that you just asked is responding appropriately to diverse groups in the system um, is by ensuring that all drug court staff, including treatment, are trained on topics such as cultural competency and humility. So we have seen and encouraged drug courts to translate all of their operational documents, such as their participant handbooks, um, and provide court-certified translators for participants whose um, first language is not English. 
that's really interesting. You know, one of the things about that aspect of your work, but even just even more broadly your work, that surprises me, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, but you know, forensic laboratories have a uh, reputation for being very careful about innovation, right? That mm-hmm. if you put something right. new in, it could, it's a risk, right? But courts are careful about innovation. They seem very hidebound when it comes right down to it. They just don't seem <laughs> to be. So it's really amazing that drug courts have been able to, to grow as fast as they have. Why is it that drug courts have been so successful in kind of breaking the mold in the court system as much as you have? Again, I think it's treating this as a public health issue and not a criminal justice or a justice issue and really focusing on treatment. And that's what's really helped grow the drug courts. And it sort of makes sense if someone comes in with a substance use disorder and we've looked at both what it does to a person, and I've seen firsthand, you know, when I did studies in family treatment court, I interviewed participants that came in in the beginning and at the end of the treatment, both the vast difference in their just cognitive abilities to just understand and to prioritize their life choices and, you know, and things, it's incredible. So I think that's been key to their success, just looking at it as a public health issue. And then the area of drugs is very, very difficult to do that. So one of the things that we want to be looking at is how drug courts have dealt with prescribing guidelines and how the Resource Center has helped to push some of the nationally recognized Uh, approaches out into drug courts. How has that worked? So we work with local jurisdictions and also actually uh, BJA. They have the prescription drug monitoring program. And since they also run the drug court initiative, uh, they coordinate on a regular basis. And also we use the CDC's prescribing guidelines in making sure that the local jurisdictions understand what they are. And we just help connect the dots for people. Yeah, so it's very important. This isn't just drug courts sort of doing their own thing. Uh, you know, a judge is not playing the role of the doctor. It really is right. with the medical community and using, you know, the CDC guidelines here to uh, do what's best. Exactly, exactly. The thing that's interesting about the whole topic of drug courts to me, there's two aspects of it. One is the very close collaboration between the different professionals involved where you're really looking at the entire person as opposed to kind of adjust the facts and we're going to give you this punishment for this crime kind of thing, which is often too often the case in the court system. I like that broader view. Is, is that something that drug court professionals kind of recognize in themselves and, and, and encourage that kind of broader view of looking at the entirety of a person and trying to get them to an end point as opposed to just, you know, uh, processing them through the system? Right, absolutely. That's that's exactly how drug courts operate. And in fact, each drug court is generally assigned a drug court coordinator who looks at making sure that all of these sectors, as I mentioned earlier, like prosecution, defense, and the probation, law enforcement, mental health, social services, treatment providers, everyone is aligned and part of a treatment plan for the person. So, and it could also include housing or education. It could really, you know, depends on what the participant needs. And I'm really excited to hear that you're all involved on the juvenile side, because I think this is a real problem beyond drug courts in juvenile justice, because the uh, juvenile justice system hasn't been as effective as it might be Because there's a lot of services, but there's a lot of isolated services that are provided to kids. And and so uh, it's really exciting to see a a sort of juvenile drug court approach 
and and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, how effective it is. That's again one of the key components of any sort of problem-solving court or a drug court, whether it's adult drug court or juvenile drug court, family treatment court. This looking, you know, using a multi-systemic approach. What happens is not only more effective, it's actually more cost-effective in the long run. It is really very cost-effective to look at things in isolation, I think. No, absolutely, yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about the Justice Program's office at American University. What other work is American University doing in the criminal justice area that you all are involved in? Sure. So as I mentioned, we provide training and technical assistance to the um, juvenile drug treatment courts. In addition, we work with Bureau of Justice Assistance's uh, Right to Counsel initiative. We also do civil legal aid. We work with state administrating agencies on just, you know, making sure that that they also are using multi, you know, systemic approaches uh, when they're determining funding for their states. And then overall, we work with the university itself to provide research support on all of our projects. Well, that's excellent. It's really exciting to hear all of the uh, work that American University is doing through the Justice Programs Office. It's it's funny because I don't know if many people know, but the parent agency to the National Institute of Justice and Bureau of Justice Assistance is called the Office of Justice Programs. And so it uh, is. (laughs) That's confusing to me as an old bureaucrat, but I'm absolutely. Well, that's very good. Just going to plug in their website again. It's ndcrc.org, and we're on Twitter at the NDCRC, and then also our Justice Programs Office is on Twitter as well at au underscore JPO. And that's fantastic. And we'll make sure to also link to all of those resources off of our podcast page so that people can learn Excellent. more about drug courts and, and the resource center. That's, that's, uh, thank you so much for being on Just Science. Perfect. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Next week on Just Science, we will discuss NIJ-funded research evaluating trends in novel psychoactive substances of electronic dance music festival attendees with Alex Katrulski and Mandy Moore. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. (laughs) 